Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, we've been most of our time in the Old Testament, and we started all the way back with Elohim and Yahweh and Adonai and El Shaddai and Yahweh Sabbath and Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah um, Rohi and I'm trying to think of all the other ones we had. um, Jehovah Nisi, um, El Elyon, trying to think of all the other ones we've looked at. But they've all been Old Testament names of God. What we're going to do tonight as we conclude is to go to the New Testament and look at some names for Jesus. Now, there's a lot of different names for Jesus we can look at. There's Jesus, there's Christ, there's Lord, but there's some specific names, and they kind of tie back to the Old Testament. But before we even do that, this is not in your notes. Um, I just thought it maybe be helpful to know that the name Jesus, it's Greek, but the Hebrew is Yeshua, which really means Joshua. So Joshua, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, but the word Jesus means salvation is of the Lord. Or Yahshua, Yahweh saves. Yahshua, Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Christ is another Greek term, and it actually means Messiah or the Anointed One. And if you remember from the Old Testament, there were three offices in the Old Testament of who was anointed. The prophets were anointed, the priests were anointed, the kings were anointed. So Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment of being the prophet, the priest, the king, the the anointed one, the the prophesied one, the one whom God's favor rests on, the one who saves. So Jesus Christ, the Lord saves as the anointed one. Okay. But there's some other names that are given to Jesus. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay, are you going to... Are you going to advance? Why aren't we advancing here? Let's try this. Oh, there we go. Jesus as the chief cornerstone. He's called the chief cornerstone. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and see how Peter describes Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And what does that mean? Okay. So it's building terminology. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Okay, so Jesus is called a living stone. Let's just, before we even go any further, why does that sound weird? What's a stone? What's the metaphor that Peter's using here? What were stones used for back then? To build things with, okay? So Jesus is considered a stone, but not just any type of stone. He is the living, living stone. Now, why is he the living stone? Why is Jesus the living stone? He's alive. Is he dead? No, he's the resurrected Christ. This comes directly from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Lord God, what would that be? Adonai Elohim. I'm just trying to remember your names here. Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. So Jesus is called here the living stone. But notice in verse 4 what it says. In God's sight, he is chosen and precious. We know that Jesus is the chosen one of God, but he's also precious. What does it mean that Jesus is precious? It means that he has the highest honor and he is of the utmost value. This precious and chosen Jesus was rejected by men and crucified. Go back just one one book, one book, one chapter in 1 Peter And go to verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. Just earlier, Peter says this, Knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's already used the word precious once. The precious blood of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus is the the precious in God's sight. So it's this whole idea that Jesus is the chosen, precious, prized, most valued person in all of history. And what's God doing? Jesus is a living stone. And what does he say? You like living stones. So, so who's the living stone? Jesus. Is that all? What does the verse say there? You are also living stones. All right, so Jesus is the living stone, and we're also living stones. Weird analogy here. But what's God doing? God is building us into what? A spiritual house. Now, what in the world does it mean that God is building us into a spiritual house? It's a metaphor for what? The temple. What was that Old Testament structure? 
where God met with His people. It was the temple. And was it built with actual stones? Yes, Solomon built the temple in all of its grandeur. But what's the word here that Peter says? You're being built into what type of house? Is it a physical house? Why is it a spiritual house? Because who are the stones? We are the stones. So every time somebody becomes a Christian, there's another stone added to this big spiritual house that God is building. And notice who's doing the building. God is building us together in community, in unity. Now, in the Old Testament, what was the primary purpose of the temple? You guys tell me, what was the primary purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? It was a place of of worship, a place of sacrifice. Okay, so what does verse 5 say there? You yourselves, like living stones, are being up, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We talked about that Sunday, so I'm not going to go over that again. To offer what? Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what type of sacrifices are these? Spiritual. Do we have a sacrificial system anymore where we're killing goats and bulls and do we have a priesthood where we've got to go take our goat or our bull or our lamb to the priest and he's got to sacrifice it on the basin and he's got to cover our sins? All that's been done by Jesus, right? So now, as a living stone, as one of, part of his family, part of his spiritual house, what is the primary purpose then of us as Christians or us as the church? What, what are we supposed to be doing? What's our identity? He says there, the primary purpose of the church is to offer Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, which would be worship. Okay? Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there's, there's many different ways in which you can worship. When we think of worship, what's the one thing we often think about? Coming to a worship service and we gather together and we sing and we pray and we give tithes and offerings and we hear the word of God preached and we fellowship that's what we call corporate worship right okay but there's also private worship where we worship God in our personal quiet time and we spend time reading the Bible and we pray to him and that's us alone with God okay but what's another act of worship or should be the other act of worship your life how you live your life. Not just, okay, I'm one way at church on Sunday morning in front of everybody, and I'm one way when I'm on quiet time, but when I live the rest of my life, I'm totally, I'm totally somebody different. He says, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. So the entirety of our lifestyle is to be living a life of worship towards Jesus, acceptable worship. And so that worship must be Christ-centered, Everything we do and how we live and what we say and how we act and our attitudes must be saturated in the person and work of Christ. Now, I like what Peter says there in verse 6. What does your translation say? Does it say, for it stands in Scripture? Does yours say stands? What does yours say? It stands. For it stands in Scripture. It's interesting when Peter's quoting scripture, 
What reverence does he give to the Old Testament? What reverence does he give to Scripture? This is this stands. This it's authoritative. This is I'm about to quote something that comes from the Old Testament. So what he's quoting there is from um, Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We just saw that earlier. Again, Jesus is the, the chosen and precious stone. This time it talks about him not being this the living stone, but the cornerstone. Verse 7, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay? Now, that's from Psalm 118.22. You don't get this in your English translations, but there are two words used for cornerstone in the Greek. Okay, There's one used in verse 6, and there's one used in verse 7. Okay, Behold, verse 6, Behold, I am, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. In verse 6, the word for cornerstone means the foundation stone. The foundation stone. Okay, so when we go build a building, what do you got to put down first? You guys, anybody remember how long this, this building sat? It was just the foundation? Because we were waiting on the steel. The steel took forever to come. and So it was just a foundation out here, just sitting out here. Okay, every house you built has a foundation. And so the word that... Peter uses here for Jesus is that he's the foundation stone. So it's the structural imagery of this of buildings. Now think about if you can picture, I wish I had a graphic up here. Think about like Peter's audience in ancient Greece. What what do you think of when you think of ancient Greek architecture? Like the Parthenon and columns and and all the, the, the ancient Greek architecture where you had columns and you had just these huge structures. Um, to, ha- to build those big of a structures, you had to have a pretty solid foundation, wouldn't you? So Peter's saying here, Jesus is the foundation. Now, that other, that, that word, that Greek word is only used elsewhere in, in Ephesians 2, 19-20. Paul uses it and almost uses it in the same way in the same context. Okay? So what does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 19-22? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together. And what would Peter say? Being joined together as living stones is what Peter would say grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, does that sound almost exactly... Does does Peter sound just like Paul there, pretty much? Not exact wordly for word, but what's the imagery here? God is building a temple. God is building a spiritual house. God is building a people. We are living stones. And as this building is being erected, who's it built on? What's the foundation? Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of everything that we do. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So for the church, for your life, for, for ministry, for whatever, Jesus is the foundation for the church. He's our rock. He's our anchor. He's our support. He's our undergirding. He is our strength. Okay, so um, let's just draw a structure here, okay? I'm going to do my best to draw. So here's the foundation, right? 
That's like, let's, let's pretend like that's bedrock foundation. Okay, so this is the cornerstone, which really would be more like the foundation stone. Okay? And then we've got these columns coming up, and we've got these columns coming up. You guys have seen Greek architecture before. And then right here you've got, usually there's like this thing that comes like this, right? And then the structure kind of goes back and, you know, you've seen like the Parthenon and Greek, Greek structures. Okay, now this top part in architecture, especially this corner, like this load-bearing corner, that's the other word that Peter uses for Jesus. So the second word in the Greek for cornerstone is really a compound word meaning head corner. Or really what we'd think of as the cornerstone. So you see that um, in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now my, my ESV has a note down there saying the head of the corner. It can also be known as a, as a capstone. It's the topmost, the topmost capstone which linked the last tier together. So this was very, very important to keep everything. The foundation is important to keep everything moving upward. And this was very important to keep the structure together. Okay, so do you see the imagery that Peter's using here? Jesus is the foundation that supports everything. But he's also the, the, the foundation that supports everything, but he's at the head. He's at the top. He's the, he's the leader. Okay? So Jesus is not only our foundation, but he's our head. He's reigning above us. Okay? So if we're these living stones, so just pretend like we're the living stones in the middle here. So we're the Christians. We're living, in, we're living stones who are we built upon? We're built upon the foundation of Jesus. But who are we looking to? Who are we under? We're under the authority of Jesus as we're looking to Him. So He's the top and the bottom. What does Scripture say in Revelation? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. So everything about our lives comes with we're on the foundation of Jesus. We're looking to Jesus. He's the head. God is building us together into this spiritual house. And our whole purpose as this house, what's the whole purpose? The whole purpose is to rely upon Jesus, look to Jesus, think about Jesus, talk about Jesus, worship Jesus. Everything involves being with Jesus as the cornerstone. Okay? Now, Notice what it says there. This has been offensive. The stone that the builders rejected. Now, obviously, in the Old Testament, this is a prophecy about how the Pharisees and the Jews of Jesus' day would reject him. They're the builders, right? The builders of the nation of Israel. They rejected Jesus. And then it says in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So we must realize that if we're going to live for Christ, in Christ, with Him as our foundation, with Him as our head, being worshipers in this world, a, a spiritual house, the cross of Christ is going to be an, an offense. People don't like Jesus being the only way. Would you agree that the cross for many is an offense? They do not like Jesus. They don't like to be told Jesus is the only way of salvation. 
Most people that you talk to don't have a problem with Jesus. But what type of Jesus do they not have a problem with? I was listening, I want to post this on our website, this past weekend, or not past weekend, Monday and Tuesday, I was at a um, a meeting in Denver, and the president of Golden Gate Seminary, Dr. Orge, um, gave a, a sermon on Monday night about revival and spiritual awakening, and he said, this is what he said, he goes, I'm really burdened, I'm really concerned as I'm traveling around the country, I'm hearing something new that really disturbs me. I'm hearing this being said, my Jesus, and then what people say is, well, my Jesus wouldn't send anybody to hell or my Jesus wouldn't condemn anybody for their lifestyle. And he says, it very concerns me because people are making up a Jesus that they're calling my Jesus. And he says, we need to get back to the Jesus of the Bible and how he's revealed himself. And so a lot of people don't have a problem with their Jesus as long as their Jesus fits what they want. But if their Jesus like goes outside the bounds of what they want and they actually start believing the real Jesus, who what did the real Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must repent and believe. There's, there's all these statements that Jesus makes about how he's the only way, about sin, about repentance, about godliness. And um, you know that's going to be offensive to people because they don't want to have a Lord. They don't want to have an authority. I would say this. A lot of people like Jesus as their foundation, right? He helps me. He bells me out when I'm in trouble. He's my foundation. He helps me. But how many people want him as their head? He's my leader. He's my Lord. He's the one to whom I submit. He's the one I follow. He's good as a backup when I fall down. I can rely upon him. But I'm not going to live my life with my eyes on him, following him as my leader. That's too offensive. But you've got to take him all. And so we're being built into the spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone and the capstone. So when you read that before, what did you just think it was? You had no idea, right? In our English translations, you don't get that there's two Greek words there, and they mean two different things. But it fleshes out this whole idea that he's the top, he's the bottom, he's the alpha and the omega, he's the beginning and the end, he's the foundation, he's the head. Okay? So that's what Jesus is as our cornerstone. There's an old Puritan saying about the offense of the gospel. It says, The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the same? The sun. What's the sun? The message of the gospel. That message of the gospel to some people is going to melt their hearts. And they're going to repent and they're going to believe and they're going to want to come to Jesus. There's some people when they hear the gospel and the sun of the gospel comes down, it's going to, they're going to be hardened and they're going to not like it and it's going to be like clay. The message doesn't change. It's the soil of the heart. Okay. Now, let's go to an, another name of Jesus, which is very, very popular. The Lamb of God. What did John the Baptist say when Jesus was walking by there? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be in Revelation the rest of the night, okay? I figure it's a good way to end the names of God by going to the end of the Bible to some of my favorite passages of Scripture. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, I wish I could preach all of this tonight, but I just can't. <laughs> but if you go to chapter 4 of Revelation, John has just seen the glory of the throne room of heaven. 
and God is on his throne and God is reigning and ruling in majesty and there's a rainbow and there's 24 elders and there's this um, peals of thunder and lightning and these four living creatures are crying out, holy, holy. It's just this ultimate scene of worship in heaven with God Almighty on the throne. And then you come to chapter 5. So let's pick up in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, the throne, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. From this verse, I want us to see three things about Jesus. Okay? And it ties into what we just saw. Number one, Jesus is the cornerstone of all history. Now, why do I get that? Got to explain some imagery here in Revelation, okay? So we're going to go a little slow so I can explain these. Verse 1, I saw in the right hand, okay, right hand. The right hand represents authority, majesty, power. Of him who was seated on the throne. Who's seated on the throne? It's God the Father. And what's in his proverbial hand? It's a scroll written on the front and the back. And how many seals does it have? Okay. So the question then becomes, okay, what is the significance of this scroll? What is the scroll? The scroll is basically the scroll of what we call destiny. It contains the full account. That's why it's written on front and back. It's representative of the full account of what God has sovereignly decreed must take place. It's God's sovereign plan of what he's going to do to bring it into the world. Now, why is it sealed with seven seals? Well, seven is an important number in the book of Revelation. Seven represents perfection, completeness. So seven seals means this is sealed up. I remember when I was a kid, we lived in Colorado Springs, and in ninth grade, we got to take a tour of NORAD. Do you guys know what NORAD is? Was it called North American whatever it is it's the it's the Cheyenne Mountain the big the, so we went up there and I remember that when you get into the mountain they have this 6 foot thick vaulted door that locks you into there it's like you're sealed in and it's this like nobody can it's like impenetrable fortress okay and so it's kind of like god has taken what's going to happen in history and put this impenetrable seal around it 
that nobody can break. It's kind of like the presidential seal. If you see the presidential seal on something, um, it, it represents the president's authority. And so this scroll written on front and back is God's sovereign plan of what's going to happen. But what's the problem? Who can open it? Is anybody just going to walk up to God and say, hey, let me take that out of your hands? Anybody going to walk past the crystal sea, the flaming creatures, the thunder and lightning, and just say, hey, God, give me that? If God has a sovereign plan of what he's going to do to institute upon the earth, who's the only one that can do that for him? Jesus. And so John begins to weep. John's like, this is... This is, this is frightening. This is scaring me. This is heartbreaking. There's, there's nobody in all creation to do this. What's going to happen? Is God's will going to be done? Is history going to come to a close? There, there's nobody coming. And John's weeping. And you're asking the question, well, why all the drama? Why the buildup? Why can't God just break the seal and say, okay, it's going to happen? Because in the grand scheme of things, who has God commissioned this to happen? Through whom? God says, my sovereign plan will only come through a mediator. Who's the one mediator between God and man? Jesus. So in the drama of history, God has reserved Jesus to be the one to come take it out of his hand to institute what's going to happen. And one of the elders tells John, stop weeping. Why? Notice the language. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And verse 5, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. There is one who has conquered. There's one who has Nike'd. So we get the word Nike. It's the Greek word conquer. There's one who's triumphant. There's one who's victorious. There's one who has overcome the grave. There's one who's overcome sin. There's one who's overcome death. There's one who's the cornerstone of all history. Who is that, John says? Well, here's the second reason. The second reason Jesus is worthy to be worshipped is because he is the conquering lion. So, Another name of God here, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you go back and you remember our study in Genesis, Judah had some problems at the beginning, but if you remember the story of Joseph, what happens with Judah? He's the fourth-born son of Jacob, but he ends up emerging as the leader. And there's a prophecy back in Genesis 49 that a king would come out of the tribe of Judah who would rule with an iron scepter and all of the nations would bow down to that king. And what do we know happened in history? Who was the first king? Saul. Do you know what tribe Saul was from? Benjamin. The Benjamin, Benjamites weren't very good. They were kind of an honorary tribe. Who's the first legitimate king of Israel? David. What tribe is he from? Judah. That's why it says there, Judah, that the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now here's where Revelation has a lot of fun. Notice, notice what verse 5 says. One of the elders said to me, weep no more, 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open a scroll and its seven seals. What does John hear? I'm hearing from the elder that there's a lion. So what do you think John is assuming to turn around and see? Come take the scroll out of God's hand. You'd assume he'd see what? I'm going to turn around and see a lions and tigers and bears. He's going to turn around and see a lion. Have you ever been to Denver Zoo? The very, you, know, you walk up to the entrance of the zoo and there's those gla- plexiglass things and, and those lions are just huge. That they lay up against the glass and just their paws are like, you know, like, I don't want to get in a fight with a lion. You don't, want to, you don't want to meet a lion in a back alley somewhere. You don't want to be on the plains of the Serengeti. You know, a lion is an image of royalty, an image of regal, an image of power, an image of conquering, an image of victory. There's one who's conquered. There's one who's victorious. There's a lion. Well, welcome to the world of Revelation. What happens? John turns around and does not see a lion. What does he see? A lamb. So let's look at the third reason here. Third reason, Jesus of why? Oh, this Easter, weird. Is because he is the crucified lamb. Okay, John sees a lamb standing. Look at verse six. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Standing. Does he see a lion or does he see a lamb? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Is Jesus a lion or is he a lamb? Yes. (laughs) He's a lion from the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb. Why is the lamb standing? All throughout Revelation, everywhere else you look, people are bowing before the throne. How come the lamb's not bowing? How come the lamb's not prostrate? How come the lamb's not lying down in submission? Two things. Number one, the lamb is equal to God. He's the only one that can stand next to the throne because he's equal with God. And number two, he's standing because he's risen. He's the risen Christ. He's not in the grave. He's he's standing because he's risen, and he's standing because he's equal with God. Later on in Revelation, you'll find out that he and God are both on the throne. At the end of Revelation, they're both on the throne. He's standing. It's proof of his resurrection. It's proof that he's alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The resurrected Christ 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Okay? So here's the issue. The lamb is standing because he's alive and he's been victorious, but how does the victory come? Look at the very next phrase. As though, excuse me, as though it had been slaughtered. Before the resurrection comes the slaughtering of the lamb. Now, let me just give you a little bit of teaching here. The word really is slaughtered. You know, our translations kind of clean it up by slain. It's in a perfect tense, which means that in the Greek language, that Christ was crucified on the cross once and for all, one time. 
But the effects of that cross, the effects of that struggle, the effects of the atonement stand completed in the present. So it was a perfect atonement. It was a bloody atonement. One of the last words that Jesus cried on the cross is, it is finished. This means that it was accomplished and applied in our lives today as we are crucified with Christ. Notice how, um, does John ever say, hey, reader, by the way, Jesus is the Lamb. Does he have to say that? The word lamb shows up 27 times in the book of Revelation. Where is John, for, where's John the gospel writer and John the revelation writer first used it? John 1.29. We've already seen it. The very first time Jesus walks across the desert there. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1.18-19. We looked at this earlier. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay, so Jesus is the lamb who has been, what's the word there? Slaughtered. Okay, now let's just look at Isaiah 53, because this is an Old Testament imagery of slaughtering of lambs. Usually the way they would slaughter lambs is they'd slit their throats. They would slit the throat of the lamb. Um, and so it was, it was bloody, it was violent. It wasn't pretty. You guys think the death of Jesus on the cross was pretty? It was pretty violent, pretty bloody, um, pretty grotesque. Isaiah 53, 5-7. This is a prophecy about Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that it's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Before John, in the Gospel of John, before Peter, before Revelation, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be the Lamb of God that would die silent. Did Jesus die quietly? Did he, did he ever like call down legions of angels? Did he ever um, get violent? Did he ever you know, fight for his rights? Or did Jesus not open his mouth? There's a very few times where Jesus defend, you know, said things while he was on trial, but for the most part, he entrusted himself to the Father. And um, the words he said were amazing, like, Father, forgive them. It is finished. So the, the, the blood was spilled by, by the crucifixion. Now, seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits of God, I can explain that to you. Again, in Revelation Seven is an imagery of perfection. So don't, don't try to draw this as a picture. Okay, okay? This is not meant to be drawn. This is a symbolic imagery. Seven horns, the horns represent authority. So seven horns means absolute, complete authority. So Jesus Christ, as the crucified lion lamb, has all authority. The seven horns represent authority. 
Okay, the seven eyes, it doesn't mean Jesus literally has seven eyes. It means that he has perfect vision, perfect sight. He sees everything that's going on. He's got blazing eyes that are able to see through everything. And then the seven spirits, that is just a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, the perfect Holy Spirit of God that Jesus sent out into all the earth after his resurrection to convict men of sin. Okay, so look at verse 7. Let's, let's go through 7 through the end of the chapter, okay? So the first half of the chapter, God has the scroll of destiny in His right hand. Who's worthy to open it? No one except for Jesus. Jesus is the lion, but He's also the lamb who was slaughtered. And now the drama comes to full completion when Jesus, John actually sees Jesus as the lion lamb go take the scroll out of the hand of God because He's the only one that can do that because He is God. And he's God's son. So let's pick up in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, you were slaughtered. And by your blood you ransom people for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Okay. Because he is the crucified lamb and the risen savior and the one who's conquered Jesus is the only one in all the universe who has the right and the power and the authority to go take the scroll of destiny out of of God's hands. And as he's doing this, there is the most powerful scenes of worship in the entire Bible. So I want us to look at worship for just a moment here. We're going to see three concentric circles of worship. So let me draw this, if I can. In the middle of heaven, you've got the throne. And who's on the throne? Yahweh, Elohim, the Father. Who's next to the throne? Jesus, the Lamb. He's standing because he's resurrected from the grave. He's standing because he's equal with God. He's able to take the throne out of God's hand. So they're distinct persons, obviously, because of the Trinity, but they're also one in essence since they both share Godhood. Okay? Now, let's look at these three concentric circles of praise and see how they spread out. So, in verses 8 through 10, we see the four living creatures. And by the way, in Revelation the four living creatures are the thro- closest to the throne. These are probably the highest order of angel, angelic beings that are directly next to the very throne of God. 
It could be like those in Isaiah 6 that were flying and said, holy, holy, holy. These are, these are angelic living creatures that are on four sides. There's four of them around the throne. So they're the closest to the throne. And what are they doing? Let's look and see what they're doing in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Okay, so who's there first? The four living creatures. So living creature number one. It's really hard to write. Let's just say these are four living creatures. Okay. And then around them, you've got, who, who else is out there? The 24 elders. Don't ask me exactly who those are. 24 is a, is a number of Old Testament and New Testament. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel. You've got the 12 apostles. So it could be that these are angelic representatives of, of God's people. Um, it could be the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. It, it's another, whoever these are, they're close to the throne. This, this first concentric circle, this first concentric circle, what are they doing? They are bowing down and worshiping as Jesus goes and takes the throne. And what are they worshiping with? Harps. Now, don't think of harps as some little guy in a toga up on a cloud going plink. <laughs> harps were more like guitars in that day. Now, when you guys think of guitars, what do you think of? Happy, kind of like, you know, happy music, you know, rocking music. So when they're playing harps, it's as if they are really worshiping God with, um, with passion, with harps. The instrument was more like a guitar. Harps and scriptures... And the scriptures are symbols of joyous worship. So they're joyously worshiping God. Um, in Psalm 33, 2, we find these words. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Okay? So it was more like a guitar. So the first concentric circle then is the four living creatures, these high, the highest angelic creatures there are, and the 24 elders, this inner circle that's protecting, you know, that's closest to the throne, they're worshiping Jesus and the Lamb. Okay? Now let's move out to the next, the next concentric circle. Verses 9 and 10, we see the next concentric circle. So this is concentric circle number 2. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. Actually, this is still part of the, um, I'm sorry. We're not there yet. <laughs> Verse 11 will be the next concentric circle. What are the four living creatures and the 24 elders doing? They're singing a new song. Okay? It's a new song. And what are they saying? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slaughtered. And by your blood you ransomed. Okay, what does ransom mean? Bought. You bought people out of slavery. Spiritual slavery. Jesus bought us out of spiritual slavery with the price of His blood. And who all did He buy? He bought people for God from where? This is the beauty of missions. From every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and language. If I had time to teach you Revelation, you would be amazed at how much exodus shows up in imagery in the book of Revelation. So Revelation is almost like a second exodus. What's the exodus? The Israelites being delivered out of bondage into the promised land. Revelation is not the Israelites, but it's the 
Jews and Gentiles, it's a new exodus, being delivered into the promised land of heaven. So the great news is that in this final exodus, this final exodus that God delivers people out of, they're not just ethnic Jews, but Christ has purchased all nations, people from all nations, from every tribe, language, people, Nations, these are synonyms for the four corners of the earth. The salvation is comprehensive, reaching to all peoples. That's why, you know, we still go to unreached peoples group. And so there's this image here in heaven of all tribes, tongues, and peoples being before the throne of God, worshiping. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. Not just Gentiles, but people from all nations. Now, this doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. Notice what it says. You ransom people for God from or out of every tribe, language, people, and nation. And what have you made them? You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Later on in Revelation, we find out in verse 21, I saw the new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God Himself will be with them as their God. What does it mean that God has made us a kingdom of priests? What does it mean? <laughs> well, it means what we looked at Sunday morning, that we are built together to worship Him, what we've been looking at, the spiritual house coming together to worship Him. What does it mean that He's made us a kingdom a kingdom? Well, we're joint heirs with Christ. We're given the command to rule. We'll reign with Christ. We'll conquer. Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I, and I, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Priest basically means that we have access to God. We can draw near to God. Hebrews 4.15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this new song that they're singing is all about Jesus. Now let's just stop and think for a moment. What are they singing about in heaven? Jesus and blood and the cross things that people kind of get offensive of here. You know, some churches are so offended by the cross that they've taken any symbol of the cross out of their church. They don't want to offend people with things that might be offensive. Well, I'm sorry, but what are they going to be singing about in heaven for eternity? The, the slaughtered lamb who's conquered, they're going to be singing a new song about his death on the cross. Okay? Now, in verses 11 and 12, we get to the second, the second concentric circle. Of worshipers. So the first set of worshipers are the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Okay, let's look at the next grouping. Um, so verses 11 through 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of living creatures and elders the voice of many angels numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So who's the next group? Thousands upon thousands of angels. Myriads upon myriads. Now, does that... Is there a number that we can like quantify and say how many angels there are? In the Greek, it really means a number that you really can't count. It's like a countless number. So this is a big group, right? We don't know how many angels there are, but there's 
Thousands upon thousands. Of so the next group of worshipers are the angels. Now these are probably higher angelic beings here in the closer one, the four living creatures. These are just like the angels. They're worshiping. They're worshiping Jesus. He's the center. Jesus is the center of the throne room of heaven. Everything is gazed upon him, and the angels are worshiping him. And what are the angels saying? What are the angels saying? Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They're talking about his death. He was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Okay? Now, we come to the climax here. What's the outer concentric circle of praise? It's us. Okay? So, the inner circle... Is the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The next circle is angels and heavenly creatures. And finally we come to the third or outer circle where the praise in heaven reaches its highest peak that we've seen anywhere in Scripture as the outer concentric circle joins in this exuberant and joyous praise to the Lamb. So verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven. Now that makes me wonder, are there other creatures in heaven besides the four living creatures, besides the angels? Are there like angelic animals? I don't know. There's other creatures in heaven and us on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. So who's this final concentric circle? All creation. I don't know how loud that's going to be, that new song. But if you've got these fellas playing guitars or harps, and you've got the 24 angels, and you've got 24 elders, and you've got angels, and you've got all creation worshiping Jesus, that is going to be the most powerful, the loudest, the most technicolor worship service you've ever experienced in your life. With all tribes, tongues, and nations gathered together. And I've always thought there's going to be a special place where, like, us and the Bogotal be right next to each other. I don't know. <laughs> and then what happens at the very end? The four living creatures and the elders fall down. They say, Amen. You know, praise be to the Lamb. So when you think about what's going to happen in heaven, should not this inform how we worship here on earth? So what should our worship services look like? Should they talk about blood? Should they talk about the death of Jesus? Should there be exuberance? Should there be a sense of seeking the glory of God to the nations? Should there be um, adoration and awe? Um, yeah, there's there's that sense that you know, obviously every worship that we have here on earth is going to be imperfect. But we should strive to model what we see in heaven. And so... Um, and more guitars? Yeah, more guitars. <laughs> yeah. There's like a four-man acoustical jam here. Maybe, you know, I don't know. If electric, I don't know if it was electric or what. <laughs> so, so, that's, so we have Jesus as the cornerstone. Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
the Lion of God, the centerpiece of heaven. But I want us to end tonight with, I don't know if this is really a name of Jesus, it's more just um, the coming King. The coming King. So let's turn to Revelation 19. And I want to show you the rider on the white horse. We could call him the rider on the white horse. There's a lot of different names of Jesus here, okay? So this is going to get where a lot of this stuff's just going to come together in his final coming, where all these names of God are going to come together. Okay, so here we go. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the coming king. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. So that's the name of Jesus, Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That's just another word for crown. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows himself. So there's an unknown name of God. The names of God? Well, there's one that's only he knows. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. There's another name. And the armies of heaven, Jehovah Sabaoth, the, the Lord of hosts, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, El Shaddai. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. All right. This talks about the second coming of Jesus. In very graphic, poetic, white horse-ish type terms. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29-31, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be, not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes on the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Is that not what we just saw in Revelation? Power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and then will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Matthew's way of talking about the second coming. Paul's way. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. Kind of in the middle of a sentence here. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They suffer; they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So we've got to establish that Jesus will come back literally, visibly, physically in power and in great glory on the clouds. Is he literally going to come back on a white horse? I don't know. Is there going to be literal swords coming out of his mouth? I don't know. This is what the scripture, you know, is this poetic language? Is it literal? Um, the, the, the difficult part of Revelation is, you know, I think it's meant to be taken metaphorically, but it could also be taken literally. And so it hasn't happened yet. So we'll find out when it does. So what I want to do, though, is in Revelation 19, I want to show you 12 descriptions of how Jesus is going to come back. 12 descriptions. Number one, he's on a white horse. Now, why do you think he's on a white horse? 
symbolizes purity. He's the pure, spotless Lamb of God. So he's going to come back on a white horse because he's pure. Okay? He is called, another name for Jesus is he's called faithful and true. So go back to Revelation 3.14. When he's talking to one of the seven churches... the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's faithful and true. He's faithful to His Word and what He brings is truth. Okay, so He is the faithful Christ. He's the true Christ. Okay, what's he going to do? Number three, he judges and makes war. I mean, almost every time you see the second coming of Christ, he's coming back in vengeance, wielding a sword to inflict justice on those who have not believed in him. A lot of people don't like that image of Jesus. What image of Jesus do people like? He's the feathered-haired, you know, hippie that walks around with sandals and, you know, holding a lamb and is all lovey cuddly. Now, am I saying that Jesus never picked up lambs and cuddled them? Do people like the image of Jesus coming back to bring judgment? Did Jesus talk about judgment in the Gospels more so than anybody else? Did Paul just say that Jesus is going to come back in judgment? Yeah. Here it says he's going to come back. It says there... In righteousness, verse 11, he judges and makes war. Makes war against whom? The ungodly that are left on the earth. Now, what are his eyes? Number four, his eyes are like flames of fire. You go back to Revelation 1.14, nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees everything. Can't hide from Jesus. I think you can hide from Jesus, but you can't hide from Jesus. His eyes are everywhere. They're like flames of fire. And on his head are many crowns. That's the next thing. He has more than the dragon, who has seven. And he has more than the beast, who has ten. We don't know how many crowns he has, but he has more than the beast or the dragon, because He's got to have more than the beast, the dragon. What does a crown represent? Authority, Authority, king, power. He he has power over the earth. Now, again, don't try to draw this or it's going to kind of of be weird. It's symbolic. Flaming eyes to see, crown of authority, white horse for purity. He's faithful and true. That speaks of Christ's character. And then we've been talking about the names of God. Elohim, Yahweh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi. Notice what verse, the end of verse 12 says. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's an interesting name. Now go back to Revelation 2.17. He has a name written that only he knows. So there's a name of God he's chosen not to reveal to us that only Christ knows. Go back to Revelation 2.17. He makes reference to this. He makes somewhat a reference to this. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So it's twice he talked about this name that nobody knows. Now, there are some some debate about what this is. So I'll give you the options that different scholars have come up with. Some people say this could be the unspoken name Yahweh that's too sacred to pronounce out loud. But we already know that he's called, I mean, Yahweh is not an unknown name because we know it's Yahweh. (laughs) We've been looking at that. That could be. It could be a reference to Philippians 2, 9 through 10, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, it's at that time where people are going to confess His name, the name above all names, and at that time we'll know what that name is when they, when they say the name above all names. Or, most likely, it's a mysterious secret name whose meaning is hidden from all created beings that Jesus keeps to Himself so that even in heaven He retains His deity and His glory will never be fully grasped. I don't know the answer to that. All I know is we've got a verse here that says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now maybe when he comes and we see that name written, we'll figure it out. Or maybe, I don't know, but somehow Jesus is keeping part of his identity to himself because he has a right to do so. I mean, did Jesus even have to do anything for us? If he wants to keep a name from us, I don't think there's any problem for us to say, Jesus, you can't do that. Anytime you tell Jesus he can't do something, you've lost. <laughs> okay. So he's got this name that nobody knows what it is except for him. His clothes are, is a ro- he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, there's three ways you can take that. The most obvious is the cross, right? Another way you can take that is it could be the blood of the martyred saints that Jesus is coming back to vindicate their death. Or it could be the blood of Christ's defeated armies. You can take all three of them, but he's got a robe dipped in blood. Again, there's that blood imagery. And he's called what? There's another name for God. He's called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What does Hebrews say about the Word of God? For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Why? Because he's got flames of fire. His eyes, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He's called the Word of God. Now, why is he called the Word of God? Because th- think about, let's just stop for a minute and, and let's just do a little bit of work. This is not in your notes, but, but think about how God created. How did God create? He spoke his Word. Okay, so let's, let's write this down. God, God's first act of creation was to what? It was His Word created, right? Then when He came to Adam and Eve, what did God tell them? He spoke His 
word to them, right? You shall eat of any tree, all the, all the fruit of the tree, all the fruit of this. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you'll surely die. When he came to Abraham, what did he give Abraham? He gave Abraham his word. He gave Abraham his promise. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. Then with Moses, then what came? Up to this point, was there anything written down? It was all verbal. With Moses, then came the word, but then it came what? It was written, right? Because it was written on, on tablets. So now God's word is starting to be written down. Okay? Then, after Moses, you kind of have a period where Samuel is the first prophet. And what do the prophets do? The prophets preach the word of God that goes back to what was written. In Deuteronomy and in Exodus, the, 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 the book of the covenant. And then all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they come and they speak the word of God. Do you see a pattern in the Bible? God spoke to the creation. He spoke to Adam his word. He spoke to Abraham his word. He spoke to Moses his word. He spoke to the prophets his word. To John the Baptist, who did he speak to? John the Baptist came preaching the word. So all throughout the biblical history, is the word of God central? Yes. And how does John open up his gospel? In the beginning was the... So Jesus comes as the living word which packs a punch when you think about everything that God has revealed about himself. He is the living word. He's the final, he's the final message. Everything that was talked about from Genesis to Malachi is pointing to Jesus, and he's the fulfillment of all of that. So he is the word of God in the flesh. He's the ultimate and final expression of God's will. He is the word of God. Also... I don't know what number we're on, number next. He's followed by a heavenly army. He's called the word of God, verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. There's some debate as to who this army is. Is it angels or Christians? The armies of heaven, to me personally, it sounds more like angels because we've looked at who the heavenly hosts are so I, I picture this more as, as angels because isn't he sending his angels to do what? To gather the elect from the four winds of the earth. Um, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, um, for since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of the command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What else? He's got a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. 
This is directly from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm that prophesies about Jesus. Psalm 2, 7 through 9. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Then it gets real scary here. He will execute God's wrath. What does it say there? Latter half of verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You guys ever seen a winepress back in those days? You know what a winepress did? It was a big vat, big huge like cement concrete vat, and they would put the grapes in, and they would have people go in there and stomp on the grapes. And they would have these shoots coming out to where what would come out of the shoots would be the actual grape juice that would be used for wine. And so you have this imagery here of people stomping on grapes, getting all, I guess you'd say, grapey or <laughs> kind of purpley <laughs> up to their knees or whatever, their waist, pouncing and then just squishing these grapes that they squeeze out of these shoots. That's the imagery here. But it's not grapes. What does it say? He will tread. Tread means walk, stomp. The wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Isaiah 63, this is kind of a, an image to Isaiah 63, 2 through 6. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he, his who treads in the wine press? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's sobering. There is a day of wrath coming for those who deny Jesus. And Jesus is coming back to execute God's wrath. Go back to Revelation 14 for a minute. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood that flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. It's about 184 miles. So whether you like it or not, or whether it's pleasant or not, there is going to come a day of, of wrath. And again, it's not, it, it's not that God's out of control, or God is mean, or God is arbitrary. It's a day where God is executing justice, righteously so, for those who have rejected His Son. And then... The last thing that we see here is that he has the supreme name 
of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the final name. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This comes from Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 14-16, To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So when you think about all of the names of God that we've looked at and all of the aspects, Jesus is the final name of God. He will come again. He will have the name above all names. He will have a name that he knows that nobody else knows. And in heaven, on the fi- for, for, for centuries upon centuries in heaven, Jesus will be the centerpiece of heaven and we will continually be singing a new song praising His name. So it all comes back to God's plan to redeem a people through Jesus in His death, burial, and His resurrection.